Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Learning to Witness. We all hear it emphasized commonly in Christian churches that Christians are to be a people that are witnesses for Christ. We hear that word used a lot, being a witness for Christ. What does that word actually mean? Why do we use that word? What is it conveying to people? How do we learn to do this? These are thoughts that we want to share with you today on Words of Grace, playing for you a message that I recently delivered at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, entitled, Learning to Witness. You and I might think that sharing the truth of the work of Christ is complicated or that it requires some deep degree, some level of theological sophistication that you can only achieve through an advanced biblical education. But on its surface, as we'll emphasize in today's broadcast, witnessing, being a witness for Christ, is no more difficult or complicated than simply giving your testimony as someone who has experienced Christ, someone whose life has been changed by Christ. You all have a story. I have a story. Every single one of us has a story with the Lord Jesus, and witnessing doesn't have to be any more difficult than telling the good things that the Lord has done for you. Here is today's message, Learning to Witness. Now, while we understand that God must call you for you to receive the word, that does not mean, that does not mean, understanding that fact, believing that truth does not mean that we do not share the word of God with people. It does not mean that we don't witness. It does not mean that we are not supposed to go and share the gospel. It doesn't mean that we don't go give the word of God to other people. And this concept of sharing the Word of God, the word that I want to leave with you last week and today is that of witnessing. Now, as we think about witnessing, and I I want to just present this concept to you today, it is no more difficult than telling other people your experience. Don't we all want there to be a huge crowd of people on Sunday morning at every, at every church in this land? We want to go out and we want to share the Word of God with people. We want to teach people the Word of God. We want people to hear and to be moved and to be impacted and to come in and worship. And so we talk about evangelism, and, and then what we begin thinking is, well, if I'm going to evangelize, our pastor is pretty particular about what he believes and what the Word of God teaches I think I really need to study theology a few years because I don't want to commit a heresy on this point or that point. Sometimes being a witness to what the Word of God teaches is as simple as sharing what God has done for you in your life. Now, some of you, if you say, all right, explain to me the hypostatic union. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? Now, you've heard me preach on it, so you ought to, but that doesn't mean that it's stuck. Remember, I can forget something that I was literally saying two minutes before. So certainly we can forget something that we might have heard two years ago. Hypostatic union, the combination of humanity and deity in the person of Jesus Christ. Completely God, completely man. Oh, yeah, 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 I knew that. I saw a couple of people go, oh, yeah. To carefully articulate the persons of the Trinity. 
can you do that to a degree that you could go out and not commit heresy, as they say? Can you break down all that the Word of God says about eschatology, the end of time, what's going to happen before the world ends, as it's ending, and after it ends? You say, you know, I really don't know that I have a good grasp on that. There's a lot about that I need to learn. Sometimes if you cannot do those things, you begin thinking, you know, I just need to study a lot more before I go out and share because I don't want to commit some heresy. You know, it's easy to commit a heresy when we begin making things up on the spot about theology. It's usually how they begin. But let me tell you something that you can always share with people, and it's so simple. You just tell them what God has done in your life. You just say, you know what, I was a wretch. God changed me. All of a sudden, I'm convicted of my sins. I don't want to do things I used to do. And I could spend two hours up here today talking to you about my life, the way that I was in school, the way that I became in high school, the way that I was after high school and college, and, and God moving in my life and changing me. And I'm going to tell you, every one of those was not a new birth experience. But over and over, there are movements of God where I'm convicted and He begins to work on me, and I can share with you what God has done in my life. And guess what I'm being when I do that? Being a witness. Being a witness. It does not take a master's degree in theology to share what God has done for you. Sometimes we think, you know what, I want to share the gospel with people. I better sign up and get my MDiv. And I've known people who have said that. Did they have any intention of being a preacher? No. But they thought, I have to be so equipped because to share it, I have to go through all of these systematic theological points uh, or I just can't at all. But I think as we'll see today, really, most fundamentally... Telling people what God has done in your life is the most basic form of being a witness. After all, that's what you what? Well, that's what you witnessed. That's what you saw. That's what you experienced. I want to turn to the book of John, and but I want to spend some time with you this morning looking at people doing this very basic thing of sharing what they know based on their experience and using that to bring other people in to the household of faith. First example of this, we'll turn to the book of John chapter 1. And I'll stick with John until we get to the big example that I want to use at the close of today's message, which is that of the man who wrote those words that we've heard read for us today from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul. And how Paul used that to share the Word of God and to defend the Word of God and even to encourage people in the Word of God. We tell what we know. We tell what we've seen. And that can be as simple as, I feel something in this place. Or, God is burdening me here. Now, a caveat is returning to John 1. This is not to discount knowledge. If you want to articulately and accurately explain the theology of the Word of God, you've got to dig into this book. But what we're talking about right now is simply being a witness to say, God did something in my life. The theology explains what God did in your life. But if God has done something in your life, you don't need anybody to explain to you that that happened. You know it because you lived through it, right? We're also not exalting experience over Scripture. 
So I have to give that bit of a caveat. We're not exalting our experience over Scripture. Our experience is explained by Scripture. Scripture has the dominance over what we think about our experience. It's to fence in our thought and our experience so that we can accurately understand what has happened to us in our lives through reading this book. We're not exalting experience over Scripture, but as we're talking about being a witness, literally to be a witness means to tell what you have seen, to tell what you have experienced. And as you do that, you testify. As you testify, others hear the Word, others come in. John chapter 1. The two examples from John 1 that I want to look at, I want to look at a few different examples from John. John the Baptist, as Jesus approaches, he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He begins pointing his disciples to the Lord Jesus. One of these men is named Andrew. Andrew is the brother of Simon Peter. Peter is exalted in our minds so many times as a preacher that was above and beyond other preachers. He was a man like any of us. He stood in need of conversion like we at times stand in need of conversion. But Andrew was actually a disciple of Jesus before Peter was. Andrew hears the message about Christ. He finds his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. What did Andrew know about Jesus at this point in his life? He pretty much just summed it up in a sentence. We found the Messiah. Well, what's, where's he from? What's his lineage? Give me 300 Bible prophecies that talk about him. He doesn't know any of that yet. He would come to know that later. But what he did know was that he had found the Messiah. And guess what he shares? He shares what he knows. You can't share something you don't know, and we get very dangerous talking about theological points that we're really not educated on. But one thing that he knew is something that you know, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, the anointed. We found God's anointed Messiah. And so he brought him to Jesus, another set of brothers. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and he saith unto him, Follow me. Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He has a little more information to convey. He knows he's the perceived son of Joseph the perceived son of Joseph, and legally the adopted son of Joseph. Jesus is legally the adopted son of Joseph. There are two lineages of Jesus in the Bible that go back to David. One, the biological lineage through Mary. Two, the adopted lineage through Joseph. And Jesus has a right to the throne of David through both of those. We have found him. We have found the Messiah. Nathaniel says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? You ever heard of those cities that you just think nothing good ever happens in that place? Well, there's just cities in the world that you think, I don't want to be out there at night. Nazareth has a bit of a nefarious reputation with this man. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip simply says unto Nathaniel, come and see, come and see. We found the Christ, come and see him. We found the Christ, come and see him. 
And as you know, Nathaniel goes up to him and Jesus interacts with him and he tells him things and Nathaniel begins to confess. Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. And it's, it's amazing at this point, all he says is, Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathaniel says, When do you know me? How, how do you know who I am? And he says, I, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he's just like, Well, here's my king. And you think, That's not a whole lot of evidence, but I want you to think about what it must have been like to stand in the presence of Jesus as a born-again person. I don't think we can fully appreciate that now that Jesus is not personally in our presence. But think about what it must have been like with the Spirit of God calling out from your heart to this man. Your heart burns for him as you're in his presence, and he tells you the slightest little thing, and my king is here. Well, there are other people that see Jesus do miracles, unregenerates, and they say he's got a devil. What's the difference? Well, the Holy Spirit testifying in the heart as one is in the direct presence of the Son of God. The second person of the Godhead is incarnate before you. If you're a born-again person, that's going to be moving to you. You're literally in the presence of God. We found him. Come and see. Another example, Acts chapter, or John chapter 4, very familiar passage of Scripture to us. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Other Jews go around Samaria. They don't want to be in Samaria. They don't want to have dealings with Samaritans. They want to avoid this ethnicity and this nationality for largely religious reasons. Jesus goes to Jacob's well, and there's a woman there. She's a Samaritan. To summarize much of this story, he says, give me something to drink. She says, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But Jesus talked to her. Remember, he must needs go through. As they interact, she perceives that he's a prophet, and so she shifts the conversation to religious topics. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus' responds to her is a passage that explains why we do what we do here in this church. You worship, you know not what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus interacts with this woman, and there were times when He would say, go and call your husband and come here. That's back in verse 16. The woman says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. And that's why she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. After spending a few minutes with Jesus, she is convinced that this man is the Christ, and she's hinting at it. You know, they say that the Messiah is coming, and Jesus says, whom you're speaking with is he, as he sends this woman away as the disciples get back. You know what this woman goes and tells people in verse 29? She goes into the city and she saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things which I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Does she go into you know, some deep doctrinal dissertation about some biblical subject that preachers sit and argue about? She just says, I had an experience with this Christ. I had an experience with this Jesus. And he told me everything I ever did wrong... I suppose. 
go tell your husband. He goes straight to the issue with her, and she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. And so she knows that he's a person that is different. She goes and she tells everyone what she has experienced with Jesus. Now, you notice in all three of those cases, they're different. They're different, and they're personal. We each have a different personal story that we can tell other people. There's a guy in John chapter 9 who was born blind. Jesus and the disciples pass by him and they see him and the disciples ask this question that makes us scratch our head. Who sinned that this man should be born blind, himself or his parents? How does a baby commit such a sin in the womb that he's born blind? You ever wondered what are these guys thinking? They actually are committing the same error that Job's friends committed when Job suffered. Job... Things are really bad. Your children are gone. Your health is gone. Your finances are gone. All you've got is this woman that you're married to, and she's telling you to curse God and die. Not much of a blessing there, is she? We know that you're harboring secret sin. You just got to repent, Job. You've done something wrong, Job. Job hadn't done anything wrong. This man hadn't done anything wrong to be blind. Sometimes people would be afflicted because they deserved it, This guy didn't do anything wrong to be born blind. Jesus says, Neither has this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, this blindness is suffered to come upon him so I can come along and heal him of that so the power of God would be on full display in his life. Now, I've used this example before. Would you be willing to suffer blindness from your youth So that the first face you ever got to look on was the face of Jesus. And to be recorded in Scripture as a man that Jesus healed, would you be willing? I think any of us would say, you know, as bad as that sounds, to experience that with Jesus would be worth it. I'm not asking for blindness. Please do not misunderstand. Jesus heals this man. As he rubs clay in his eyes and goes and washes, he received his sight. People begin asking, where is he? I don't know. How are your eyes open? There was a man. He's named Jesus. He anointed my eyes and he told me to go wash. Verse 11. These people know him. He's there every day asking for help. They begin to argue because it's the Sabbath day and you're not supposed to heal somebody on the Sabbath day. Let me tell you, it's always good to do good, even if it's the Sabbath day. But they're mad about it. What do you mean? He healed you on the Sabbath day. Let's kill him. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So you're not supposed to heal somebody on the Sabbath day, but you can conspire to kill somebody on the Sabbath day. Great, great. That really gives you the heart of these people, doesn't it? They begin arguing, well, how can he do this if he wasn't a prophet of God? And then others are like, well, no, he's probably got a devil. He's got to be a sinner. And you've got this great debate happening. And they begin to ask this man and press this man. And he's like, look. Whether he be a sinner or no, I don't know. But what I do know, verse 25, whereas I was blind, now I see. This man says, look, I don't know about any of this stuff you're arguing about. You ever feel that way when people are arguing about the Bible and you don't even know what they're talking about? You're like, look, I don't even know what y'all are talking about. But what I do know is that I was blind and now I see. This man shares what he knows. He knows that he was blind. He knows that he now sees. Now, 
The greatest example of this in Scripture, to me, of a person using their experience is that of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, there's a young man named Saul. In chapter 7, he was consenting unto the death of Stephen. In chapter 8, he made havoc of the church, dragging men and women, Christians, out of their homes, arresting them, compelling them to blaspheme. He was mad against the church as in a mad dog. He was out of his mind. He's on a road to Damascus with letters to apprehend any of this way, any Christians. He is an unregenerate. He is evil. He is wicked. He is yet in his sins. He's blind. And what's worse of all, he's religious and he thinks he's more holy than everybody else. And here he has an encounter with Jesus. As he journeys, suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth, and he heard a voice say unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he says, Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, to me, this is the greatest depiction of how a person passes from death unto life in Scripture. Now, we all don't see a glowing beam of light around us that blinds us for three days. But we are all at one point in our existence lost in sin. We have an encounter with Jesus that Jesus performs, and from that moment on, life is different. We are different. Something's different. We have been changed. He is quickened. He is resurrected. He is regenerated. Who is there? It's just Saul and Jesus. And Saul is dead, so he can't help. Now, he's alive physically, but he's dead spiritually. In the new birth, there is no one there helping. It is but you and God, and you are dead. And it is God that gives you life. Saul of Tarsus is trembling. Lord, what will you have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise, go into a city. It will be told of you what you will do. At that time, God tells this man, Ananias, that Paul is a chosen vessel to go and to bear witness, bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He would suffer many things for God's sake. Ananias goes, says, Brother Saul, puts his hand on him, he receives his sight, and Saul immediately gets up and goes and is baptized. If you or I had been persecutors of the faith, And this is one of the most important things that I'm going to say to you today. If you or if I had been persecutors, if we had been that evil, this man's the chief of sinners, right? He's not just mean in eighth grade. He doesn't just cuss a little bit in high school. He's not somebody that drinks or fornicates. This man is a murderer of Christians. If you or I had his past, we would be tempted to do everything we could do to cover up what we did in our past because we would be ashamed, and rightly so. But you know, Christianity is not about you and me being more holy than other people, so we cover up what we've done in the past, we dress up real nice on Sunday, we go into a building, hear a message about how holy we are and how unrighteous everyone else is. We are Saul of Tarsus. Saul went from persecutor of Christians to lover of Christ, and rather than burying the scandal, 
He used it to talk about how good God was and evangelize people. You know what he was doing? Bearing witness. Every single one of us has a past. Now, some of you might think, well, mine's not as bad as others, and, and you might be right. You know, what do we do in politics? We cover up all the scandals and we bury it and we pay people to keep quiet. And, you know, if it can be loudly proclaimed, maybe it can ruin a candidate's. I'm not talking about any modern ones or previous ones. It's just what they do. They sling mud and maybe they can end a candidacy. To the Christian, we don't say, I hope nobody finds out about what I was before Jesus. We say, this is what I was before Jesus. And this is what I am now. This is what I was when I fell away in my 20s and came back in my 30s. Or this is what I was when I was a sinful, wretched, little, wicked dude in high school. And through God's grace, now I don't do those things anymore. Not because I'm better than anybody else, but because God was so good in my life. What's your story? Every one of you has one. Every one of you has one. Guess what God expects you to do with that story? To go and to tell other people that story. Does Paul do that? Acts chapter 22. You know what Paul does as he stands before all the Jews beating him outside the temple in Acts chapter 22? He told that story. Listen, I was a persecutor of this way. I had an encounter with the Christ and now I preach this way because it's real, because I experienced it. And they're so mad at him, they want to kill him. In Acts chapter 26, Paul stands before Agrippa. You know what he does? He tells the exact same story. He doesn't bury his past. He uses that as a tool to evangelize. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, Paul, talking about the grace of God, says that he's not worthy. Are, are, are any of us worthy? He's not worthy because he persecuted the way that he now preaches. He says, I'm not Meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Galatians chapter 1, you know what Paul mentions to the churches in Galatia? How wicked and sinful he was before he had a personal encounter with Christ. You heard of my conversation, chapter 1 and verse 13, in times past in the Jews' religion, how beyond measure I persecuted the church of God, and I profited in the Jews' religion above my equals, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb when I was born, and called me by His grace when I was born again to reveal His Son in me that I might preach, then he goes on to continue to recount his experience. What does Paul do over and over? He tells his experience. Tells his experience. What is that? It's a witness. First Timothy chapter one. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy. What's he referencing back to? The fact that he was a persecutor of the church and that God saved him from that. So I'm going to get real with you. As I've already said, we hide the sins of our past. We don't want people to know the foolishness that we got into because we have this in our mind, and, and maybe we fostered a culture of this over the past hundred years in the Primitive Baptist. We hide the things we used to do. We hope no one finds out because we want everyone to think that we have always been these righteous relics of holiness. Guess what? None of us are righteous. That's just Jesus. And His righteousness is given to us. Rather than hiding the past that you have that you're ashamed of, and we should be, we need to recognize 
that God's deliverance of us is part of our witness. That's what we go bear witness of. That's what we testify. And so rather than hiding what we've done, we don't glory in it. Now, we count it as dung according to Philippians. We go and we share that story. Each one of you has your own story of what God has done in your life. As you invite people to this church and you tell people about your Savior, that is the starting point. That's the ground zero. That's what you begin with as you share the Word of God with others. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.